Welcome to another episode of the Bible Toolbox. I'm Lydia. And I'm Luke, and we're here to help you enjoy the Bible through the tools that scholars and programmers have created for you. Mm-hmm. And we are going to do the second part of our interview with Dr. John Mead. So don't don't just jump in here. You listen to the, the first part. So the first part, we talked about how the Old Testament was copied and the different versions. And in this part, we're going to talk about more the canon. How did we get the books in our canon and which book should and should not be in there? So enjoy. Oh. So your quick opinion, how tall was Goliath? Ah, yes. Okay. Yes. Because that's part of it. Yes. My quick opinion. Uh, so let's see. You're asking me today. I think I think he's tall. I li- like our English translate. Most of our English <laughs> translations. I think he's nine feet, nine inches. So six, six cubits and a span. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. That's that's uh, the Hebrew version versus the. Yeah. Septuagint. And well, and even 4Q. So one of the Dead Sea Scrolls has him as shorter, too. Oh, okay. But mm-hmm. yeah, but I still think I still think tall works. A later scribe shortens him to highlight Saul's cowardice, I think. Mm-hmm. That's that's my okay. two cents on that. But we're going to debate that one until the cows come. Home. <laughs> <laughs> can you can you talk about how how was the Old Testament preserved? Because like when we interviewed um, Dr. Gurry, he like said the church decided on the canon using these criteria which makes sense because it was all copied and all of that. But because the Old Testament is so historical and obviously like was kept in the temple and then more just like later books, how did they determine like these are the books of the Old Testament? Ah, yes. Good. So as we've said earlier, the the temple and the royal palace probably were the, the main centers of scribal activity, right? It's like not by accident that Ezra, Right. He's a priest scribe, isn't he? Mm-hmm. You know, OK, so it's just it's not by accident. Uh, even Deuteronomy 17, by the way, the, the laws about the king where he should he needs to he writes out a copy of this yes, law. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And he does it, though, in the presence of the Levites. Interestingly. Mm-hmm. So, okay. yeah. So there's definitely a temple uh motif center going on okay so so that would mean then the books would have been stored there as well okay there would have been um like an archive in the temple where all the books would have been stored copied curated and that sort of thing so i do think that's the beginnings of sacred literature anything in the temple right is holy is Mm -hmm. sacred no question. Problem is, we don't we don't have the exact library catalog of what books were in the temple. Do you mm-hmm. see what I mean? Uh, even the even some of the Old Testament histories refer to other books that are no longer extant. Right? They're not in our mm-hmm. canon, and it's plausible that those books would have also been in the temple archive at one time. Do you follow me? Mm-hmm. Okay. So so canon necessarily gets to those books that God ultimately preserves for his people. Okay. Um, so, so how do we have them? I think the temple is the, is the major first kind of mechanism that we can point to, to say, okay, it's going to be books in here stored in here. But um, at the end of the day, how do we, how do we determine which books? Yeah. And um, 
that that requires that requires looking at a whole lot of history. I mean, mm-hmm. a whole lot of evidence. Um, when you're talking about reconstructing a picture of the Old Testament canon, what books were the people of God confessing as divinely inspired and authoritative? Well, you can look at uh, say let's let's start with the New Testament because I think this is probably the best example. Uh, Testament has a whole lot of books that it cites yeah. as scripture, right? I mean, sometimes, right? Hebrews will even say something like, well, as the Holy Spirit says, well, okay. I mean, whatever <laughs> is be, whatever is attributed to the Holy Spirit, right, is going to be divine, okay? Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say. And I think he's talking about Psalm 95 there, okay? So, so to me, um, we're going to take those quotations, those kinds of citations very, very seriously, okay? Now, just to kind of cut, something off of the past in in the book we're very clear about citations and quotations like that is like citations something being referred to as scripture or as as being written down okay that that's key if you look at jude and maybe dr gurry talked about this the e the, the so-called enoch quotation in the book of jude it's interesting enoch prophesies but but it's really not a mention about something being written down, okay, in Enoch. And I think I think that's kind of interesting to to point out. Uh, I won't dwell here, but that but that's something to think about. Like why is it introduced so differently uh, than the vast amount of citations in the New Testament that are introduced with something like as it is written in the prophet, right, mm-hmm. or as or as the scripture says, okay, something like this. Uh, so so. The Jude quotation of Enoch, that's that's something to think about. Um, but but um, so so the New Testament has a bunch of citations, but there's also things like allusions, though, that we have to take into account. So so the book of Joshua is never quoted as scripture in the New Testament. But in Hebrews three and four, right, the book of Joshua is certainly alluded to. OK, so I, but we do draw a fine line there. You, you'll look at the table in the book and go, oh, why doesn't he have Joshua like cited in the New Testament? Well, because I'm really, really drawing a, like a fine line between what is cited and what is alluded to. An illusion shows awareness of a work. A citation is actually like an estimation of that work's authority, right? That works, that works value. And there's a difference there. There are there are allusions to books outside of the Hebrew Bible in the New Testament. We mentioned some of these, but in Hebrews Hebrews chapter eleven, there's a there's an allusion to to these mothers receiving their sons from the dead. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and all of this is by faith. Well, the the author to the Hebrews is not alluding to anything in the Old Testament at that point. He's alluding to the book of Second Maccabees, chapter oh, six, and yeah, with the martyrs, yeah. the with with the, the Jewish mom, martyrs, the martyrs. Yes, okay. and the language he and the language he uses about them being tortured and these sorts of things, it it's un, it's unmistakable. It goes back to the books of Maccabees, um, but it's an illusion, not 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 a scriptural reference. I I would claim. I would say, okay. When you do that with two other sources like Philo of Alexandria, this Jewish philosopher, 
in Alexandria, famous for his allegorical readings of Moses and, and other books of the Old Testament. Um, Philo never once quotes what we call the Apocrypha. He just quotes and, and references books in the Hebrew canon, interestingly. Um, and then you go to the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are there are many quotations of books in our Old Testament found in other works of the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, which I think is interesting. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls do quote maybe one or two other books, but but mainly they quote books that would eventually be contained in our Old Testament. Hmm. So, so we're asking, how is it these books and no others, right? That's the canon question. Right. Yeah, and I think what, what's happening is the people of God are simply learning to recognize the voice of God in these books, right? And nowhere else. Okay. Um, that's not to say they don't read other books. Gosh, they did. <laughs> they read, that's not to say they didn't copy other books. They did. Um, but it is, but it is fascinating that when it comes time to list books, uh, that are canonical, right? That are the rule for faith and practice. It's it's a, a, a limited set of books, okay? Hmm. Now, from this period that I've just kind of laid out, Dead Sea Scrolls, Philo, New Testament, there are several books that are just simply not mentioned at all. Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Esther. Esther's a difficult one. Hmm. Yeah. Um, no quotations of those books that I'm aware of. Okay. In, in the three major sources before kind of the turn of the era. Okay. And, um, so, so we can't, here's what I want to be clear about. We can't piece together the old Testament canon just on citations. You can't do it. Um, what, 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 what is required is, is moving forward and seeing uh canonical lists okay that are um that are drafted okay in the second century a.d okay? okay then you start to see oh okay like this 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 book is canonical let me go back let me back up at qumran uh, a number of books are quoted as scripture there genesis the book of genesis nowhere quoted in literary works at qumran Hmm. nowhere nowhere um and so that doesn't mean to me and most that genesis wasn't considered canon there it's just an omission in the citation record you see <laughs> so so but but it does show that we're not going to be able to put together a whole canon based on cited works there's just not there's there's not ample data to do that there, the, the record shows that Genesis is never, ever disputed by Jews or Christians. That book is firmly in the canon, mm -hmm. but it's not always quoted by everybody. Okay. And so that, that introduces little issues with method, right? How are we going to determine? So I, I, I've, as you guys know, I've edited a, a book on the early Christian canon lists, you know? Um, so I, I, I tend to look at canon lists as kind of the, the interpretive key for all of the evidence that comes flying at us, evidence of manuscripts, evidence of quotations, uh, canon lists can kind of help us determine 
what the ancients considered to be mm-hmm. authoritative scripture. Does that make sense? So, mm-hmm. so our first list comes from a, a, a Christian bishop named Melito, say around 170 AD. Melito lists the books of the Old Testament or the law and the prophets, he calls them. And, uh, and every one of the books he lists is in our canon, except he doesn't list Esther. Esther's the only book uh, not in his list, but otherwise his list is is totally restricted by the books of the Hebrew canon. You see, okay, not interesting. Yeah, and I think that sets a that sets a trajectory. Um, most of the canon lists of early Christianity more or less follow that Melito list. Only a few of them omit Esther. Most of them include Esther. Okay, in the canon. Um, that goes back to Jewish disputes about whether Esther was in the canon or not. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually Jews firmly accept Esther in the, in, into the canon. Um, probably Purim, uh, that the feast of Purim, right. Commemorating the salvation of God's people, mm-hmm. right. Through Esther and Mordecai. I mean, that's, that's probably the ultimate reason it gets included, like recognized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, but some Christians were aware of the early Jewish disputes about the book, and I think that's why they don't always list it okay. uh, amongst the canonical books. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Can you yeah. can you briefly talk about why do Catholic and Protestant Bibles differ in terms of the Old Testament canon? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, for sure. Um, so why? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you're just jumping right to it, aren't you, Luke? <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So my, my my two cents is this. My two cents is this. Um, <clears throat> eventually, in the fourth century AD, um, Christians start to accept books into their canon that are not part of the Hebrew canon. Okay. So over and above. Okay. What's interesting is that all early Christians would agree that the Hebrew canon is the foundation. It's the starting point. It's just that some Christians, like Augustine, for example, decided we should add six more books. Okay? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Everyone agrees, except for maybe Esther, but but I don't Esther's hard. Let's just put it to the side for a second. For the most part, every Christian would believe that the Hebrew canon is the foundation of the starting point for the church's canon. But in North Africa, there was a different criterion for canonicity in play. That criterion essentially said something like this. Anything for the edification of God's people is included in the canon. Mm. Okay. Tertullian uh, in Carthage Uh, Around 200 AD, Tertullian is probably the first one to put it that way, okay? And he's advocating for for perhaps the adoption of Enoch into the canon, okay? So so Tertullian is the first to put it this way. But but a couple centuries later, Augustine formulates a very similar criterion. And basically, it boils down to the church creates – or not creates, that's wrong. The the church has received these books. The church has accepted these books. And by these books, it's the books of the Hebrew canon, like in our Protestant Bibles, plus Tobit, Judith, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, and First and Second Maccabees. Okay, so, so he includes those six extra books. 
in, in his Bible. Now that didn't go unnoticed. That wasn't like mm-hmm. unchecked <laughs> his, uh, his sparring partner named Jerome was not happy with this move. Okay. And Jerome had been watching this, uh, this so, sort of development on, unfold uh, in North Africa for a long time. And he published uh, three different canonical lists in his own lifetime. But, but one of the canonical lists that he published uh, was like a preface to his translation of the books of Kings. Okay. And in this preface, he lists out the books of the Hebrews. And he says, this is the list that the churches have always had. And then he says, there are these other books that are outside of the canon that are apocrypha. And he lists those books of Tobit and Judith and Wisdom and Ecclesiasticus and First and Second Maccabees. And he's the only one in this time period to ever call them apocrypha. And he's doing that on purpose because he's trying to he's trying to be pejorative because he's in the he's in the heat of debate about whether the church should accept these books or not, you see. And so um so there's a fourth century debate. This is never resolved. That uh, Jerome and Augustine's opinions are well known. They simply are held side by side in tension through the entire Middle Ages. And it's not until you get to the Council of Trent in 1546 where they, even though they would say we weren't deciding between Jerome and Augustine, the decree of Trent on the canon agrees with Augustine because it includes all those extra books. And it says that the person who doesn't accept this list of books is anathema, okay, is accursed. Which, by the way, that's the first time an anathema, a curse statement, is ever appended to a a canonical list. Up to that point, canon, I think, had always been a, a point of debate but it had never become a point of whether one was in or out. Do you see what I mean? Hmm. I think that's important to point out. Like there, we can hold differences. I think um, we don't always have to jump to my opponent being cursed by God. <laughs> okay. So, so, so I, I, yeah, I, I know, I know it's, this is a tough one. Um, so, so my question then is how do we decide who's right? And I think there's a lot of different ways we could come at an answer to that. But but the simplest is this. Um, the vast majority of the canon lists only list the books of the Hebrew canon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the famous Athanasius, right, who was the first to indisputably list the 27-book New Testament canon. He's also the, he's, he also lists the Old Testament books. Okay. And he lists the 22 books of the Hebrew canon, uh, which I, don't, I won't go into, it, but 22 does equal 39 of the Protestant. But okay. once you, yeah, once you do the um, the math, say the minor prophets, 12 minor prophets count as one book, for example. So, um, yeah, so you get a smaller number on the Jewish reckoning. But what's interesting is that Jewish reckoning even enters into a Christian's biblical theory, you know, like how does he... How's that happen? You know, um, that's that just shows me those Christians are consciously influenced by the Hebrew canon, you see. 
And um, that's that's the vast majority of the earliest history of the Old Testament canon is we look at we look at what the Jews have. We look at what the Jews are reading in their synagogue. And that's our canon. This is actually anticipated in the New Testament. Paul in Romans three, verse two, asks the church at Rome, right? Well, what's the benefit of being a Jew? And he says, of course, much in every way. Uh, and the first thing he mentions, right, is they possess the oracles of God. Hmm. That's interesting. And, uh, and 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 it's pretty clear what he means by that is look, look to your Jewish neighbor and ask what what books do they ho- do they possess? And that will actually give you your canon, I think, is what Paul's meaning. So that criterion of looking to the Hebrew canon uh, is found in the New Testament itself, you see. And um, to get to a canon that's different than the Hebrew canon, you have to go to a different criterion. You have to say, well, mm-hmm. the church is what ultimately decides, not the tradition of the synagogue. Okay, so that's that's mm-hmm. Jerome and many others said, nope, the synagogue has decided for centuries. And that's what we're going with. You know, okay. Melito yeah. of Sardis lists the books of the Hebrew canon, right? Not the other ones. So how would you think of those six books? Are, should we stay away from them or? Ah, yes. Yes, we should hide them and you should never read them. <laughs> That's reverse psychology, guys. I, I want them to go. <laughs> now go and read them, right? No, again. <laughs> no, so 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 what I what I would say um is uh so so early Christians had had a more sophisticated scheme than just saying canonical and non-canonical. Okay. In fact, the the normal um, the normal referent for apocrypha would be a book like, say, the Gospel of Thomas. Okay, like a like an apocryphal gospel. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, like I, I said, it's a little really unusual that Jerome used that term apocrypha for those six special books. Okay, what does apocrypha that, mean? Yeah, so apocrypha just means hidden. Okay, yeah. And and it was kind of thought to be that these were the hidden, the esoteric books that maybe scholars would read, but but normal believers should stay away from these books. That was the general advice. Okay, uh, Cyril of Jerusalem puts it this way uh, to to new converts to catechumens. You know, in around 350 A.D., Cyril says, "Look, guys, only read what the church reads publicly." That's a good rule, right? Don't don't bother yourselves with speculation and speculative books. Read what the church reads in public. That's a really interesting way to define canon for people, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just read what the church reads in public, okay? So that's how a guy like Cyril of Jerusalem would answer this question to new believers. Just read what the church reads. But Origen, for example, Origen of Alexandria, this just incredible, um, just a prodigious scholar, right, in, in around 200 A.D., 250 A.D., Origen read all of the apocryphal books. Like, there's no doubt. He read everything. And he did that because he didn't want anyone to surprise him with a book he hadn't read. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So apocryphal books were not reading for new believers or even the the average believer scholars would read them um but they were generally considered to be dangerous generally considered 
uh, to be forgeries, right? No one thought Thomas wrote Thomas. Okay. Uh, that's interesting. Um, so, so that's what Apocrypha means back then. Then they had canonical, right? The books we've been talking about. Now, this is the part that's new for everyone. There's a middle category of books in early Christianity, a middle category of books, books that they would have called edifying, books they would have called uh, able to be read, okay, or readable books. Uh, some of them would have just called them intermediate books. So books that are um, <laughs> close to the words of truth over here, right? And not pseudonymous, not, not dangerous over here, but books that occupy a middle space. Okay. These are the generally those church fathers that go on to list those readable books, that's where they put Tobit, Judith, um, Wisdom of Solomon, and Ecclesiasticus. Okay. Those books take up that that space. That means they weren't rejected outright. They could be read. Uh, Jerome would say read for edification, but they weren't thought to be books that you could base doctrine upon. Okay. In the okay. earliest centuries. Um, in other words, I could read that story of the Jewish martyrs in second Maccabees, and I could be inspired to, to fear God more than the emperor. Right. Like, like I could, I could read it and be edified by that story, but I may not base a doctrine of martyrdom on on that story mm -hmm. to see what i mean like like eventually would happen okay so so there's a there's a fine distinction amongst many church fathers that you can read those those stories for edification but you cannot derive doctrine from them okay, okay? Yeah. that's why they're copied by the way with the other books that's why sometimes they're even quoted as scripture okay but the same guys like Athanasius, for example, that would quote wisdom of Solomon as scripture, never put wisdom in the canon. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because they have a sophisticated view of how these middle books uh, operate within the life of the church. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So, so what's interesting is when you get to the Protestant Catholic divide in the, in the, um, uh, the 16th century, uh, Martin Luther right? The famous German reformer uh, in 1534, when his uh, Luther, his German translation comes together fully, uh, he doesn't reject the Apocrypha outright. He translates the Old Testament, the Hebrew books. He translates the New Testament from Greek. And in the middle, he includes those apocryphal books. And he's got a preface. He says, these are apocrypha. He said, they're not equal to the scriptures. But nevertheless, hmm. they are good and useful to read. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? It's a good summary. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a good summary because because we I don't know about you all. I mean, I grew up Protestant in in Catholic New England. OK, and so it was not uncommon for me to hear that Protestants took books out of the Bible. OK, right. That was that was pretty normal. Um, but but. But uh, to the contrary, no, uh, the earliest church tradition uh, never includes those books, okay, first of all. And Protestants have had a bit of a mixed reception, a mixed reaction to those books. Uh, the Puritans in England 
one of them out. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> just get them out. Okay. And that's fine. That's fine. They, they're entitled to that. They, they can do that. But that's a different kind of opinion in the 17th century than the 16th century Protestant opinion, which said, well, let's keep them around. We, we're, we're not going to build doctrine upon them. But this, th- these books have been part of the devotional literature of God's mm-hmm. people for a long time. And so let's, let's keep them in with a clear preface saying they're not equal to the canon, okay? But they are useful. I think that's, yeah. a, I don't know. I, you guys have caught me late afternoon here in Phoenix. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of amicable to that opinion right <laughs> now. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> awesome. So. All right, so summarizing all of that is what we have now what they had then <clears throat> yes next question <laughs> awesome <laughs> no that's right no i i yeah i i'm not um the more i look i i oftentimes get this question well you know dr mead the longer you study these things the more you study these things i mean what does this do for your faith does mm-hmm. this and um and i i for my faith it's it strengthens my faith Okay, uh, I I look at the fingerprints of providence, so to speak, over this over this whole history, um, and to me, uh, it, it as I read it, it looks like I have the 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 word of God that God Himself wants me to have. Yes, there are books mentioned in the record that no longer exist. This means not for me, not needed for me. Okay, there are some textual or differences in manuscripts, right? But, but that's okay. That's okay. Differences don't mean I have nothing. <laughs> yeah. No, I I have what's sufficient, right? For for salvation, for what how for how God wants me to live, you know. For, for I have I have what's needed to for for God to reveal Himself to me. Uh, to the, to his people, especially in his word, right? So, so I have what's needed for this life and practice. That doesn't mean I'm not going to have questions. Of course, I'm going to have questions and we're going to continue to sort them out. Um, the more you do this, the more you kind of become um, a, a disciple of some of those early fathers that you used an expression, faith-seeking understanding. Okay, I like this expression. Fides quarens intellectum. Okay. Faith seeking understanding. This means I'm going to lead with faith. I'm going to be a believer as I do scholarship. Okay. And, um, but faith doesn't cancel out the idea of seeking understanding. You see, we're holding these things in, in a, in a good tension, I think. And so, so when I look at the history of the Bible, I'm, I'm encouraged and my faith is strengthened as I, as I do this work. Awesome. All right. Uh, and then what, what tools are available if people wanted to, they're right. reading the old Testament and where, where do you yeah. find where these differences are if manuscripts and such? Right. Right. Ooh. Okay. So, um, yes. Hmm. <clears throat> This is the hardest part to answer, I think. So, so um, scholars access access these things through cr- what we call critical editions. Okay, uh, that is uh, a book that will have, say, a text on top in Greek or Hebrew, with what they're going to call an apparatus down below, right, with all the differences in the manuscripts. Okay, mm-hmm. so. 
So scholars are going to access the Greek New Testament through an edition, Greek text on top, right? Apparatus in the bottom. When you talk about the Old Testament, though, uh, it's it's trickier still. Um, the Hebrew text that we have, it's a huge book. It's like this thick. I mean, it's huge. Um, it's got a it's got the Hebrew text of one manuscript, Codex Leningrad. Okay, and then an appar a, a skinny apparatus with a few textual variants to it in these things like the Septuagint and Samaritan Pentateuch and that sort of thing. <clears throat> but we got to delve. That that means we have to go. Old Testament scholars have to delve deeper than just that edition. We have to actually look at critical editions of the Septuagint, right? So um, it's like you know, right behind me here, all. All of this is book by book, a critical edition of every book in the Old Testament, you see. Okay. So like this is just Job, right, for example. And uh, and if you crack this, right, I don't know if you can see that. There mm -hmm. we go. There's a skinny text up top here, right, with a whole lot of apparatus here at the bottom. Okay. So scholars, scholars are going to access the Greek text of Job's through something like this. But some of you might say, well, I don't know if, what I can do then. Well, it, scholars have also made tools like this available, right? A New English translation of the Septuagint. That's a one volume that has uh, a fairly up-to-date contemporary English translation of the Septuagint. If you're a Logos Lexam fan, there's even another one that looks like this. Okay, <laughs> you can access uh, all of the Septuagintal books in English. Compare those with, say, your English translation based on the Hebrew, or um, maybe your maybe your listeners are familiar with something called the Net Bible, mm -hmm. right? The Net, yep, the Net Bible has just copious footnotes, uh, usually pointing to these kinds of things. But if the Net Bible raises an issue, and you say, "Well, I want to check that out," well, then. Well, then go find go find it maybe in one of these two things. By the way, this one here, you can Google this, and all of the PDFs are for free online yeah. per book. Okay, for so the new English fun. translation. Oh, yeah. In case they're listening and yeah. can't hear the audio. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yes, yes, for the new English translation. Yeah, no, that's good. So, um, <clears throat> so yeah. Um, trying to think what else. So, so. So scholarship on the text of the Hebrew Bible continues. Um, again, if you're in seminary or Bible college somewhere, you know, you need to be familiar with these kinds of things. Biblia, Hebraica, Quinta, right? The BHQ. This has um, like a, again, a, a full-on Hebrew text of Genesis at the top with Masora notes here, but then a pretty healthy textual apparatus here, Okay. Um, which is far better than the the BHS. Okay, so so again, if you're kind of a a, a more committed, that's not the right word. I want to be <laughs> not, I, committed is not the right word. But if you're but if you're really engaged in this mm -hmm. kind of stuff, like you're learning the languages, you're trying to learn about manuscripts and editions, right? That's that. These are the volumes you need to look at. Um, but if you're an English Bible reader and you say, well, how do I how do I even possibly, possibly climb this mountain? 
Guys, it's simpler than you might think. Just just learn to read your footnotes in the Bible. At the bottom. They're always they're usually italicized at the bottom. And so oftentimes they will say, like, well, one Hebrew manuscript has this. The Septuagint and Dead Sea Scroll might have this. And they give you another reading. Mm-hmm. And they actually tip you off to some of the issues that we've been talking about in this episode. Okay. So so to, so the person out there who's like, man, I'm really curious. I really want to learn more. Then the first I say this, the first baby step is just read your Bible footnotes and you will become far more educated about these issues than you can possibly imagine. And maybe more than you want. Okay. Uh, Cause it's, there's, they're, they're, they're better than we think. They actually do signal some good differences. Now I, I, I quibble with many of them, but, but they're still, they're very, they're, they're a good entry point in uh, to this whole discussion uh, in the old Testament. So, um, so for lay people, uh, the net Bible, your um, uh, your your foot the footnotes in your English version, I direct or co-direct something called the Text and Canon Institute uh, at textandcanon.org. You we Dr. Gurry Peter Gurry is my New Testament colleague here at Phoenix Seminary. He and I try to signal some of these things in articles that we have written. Um, in fact, we're coming up to Easter. Last year we did a series on some of the more important textual problems in Isaiah 53, mm-hmm. right? The passage of the suffering servant. Um, so you can go on to textandcanon.org and search for that. And uh, about six articles come up detailing certain issues there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, um, well, I don't have it at hand, I guess, but the, well, I guess I do right here. There it is. Scribes mm-hmm. in scripture. Uh, that's the book I've been kind of referring to. Yep. That 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 gives an attempt for a for an interested layperson, a pastor, even uh, maybe university freshman. How did we get our Bible right? Like manuscripts, canon, mm-hmm. translation, right? Those those are the big questions that we tackle in that book. So, um, I would say the good news is that is more and more resources are becoming available, um, which is which you guys are trying to spotlight here, which is good. (laughs) The Bible toolbox, right? (laughs) So, so, but yeah, it's a, it's a good day to be alive. Um, Yeah. I mean, gosh, guys, we could talk forever. There there's uh, more and more libraries in Europe are starting to put manuscripts online digitally, uh, starting with the Vatican library. So the digi digi for digital, right? VAT the DigiVat library. You can look that up. And I don't know how many they have, how many manuscripts the Vatican has, but a whole lot of them are digitized now. Hmm, and cool. you can just you can just look them right up. So That's interesting. So anyways, it's a good t- it's a good time to be alive in terms of online resources, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so just kind of drawing it to a close, how has all of this work just um helped you enjoy the Bible more? I mean you said a little bit earlier that it's in deepen your faith, but anything else specifically? Yeah. I mean, it just, I, I think for me, it's, um, it's, uh, it's like an adventure for me. That's, that's the way I look at it. Like I, I encounter a problem or a, a difference in the text and, um, 
and for me, I don't always know. How, I just don't always know the conclusion, right? When you when you start down a path or a road that way, mm-hmm. and you you start to travel, you know, a few miles down the road, and 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 putting things together and comparing different witnesses to the text, uh, under faith seeking understanding, I we can just we can embark on all kinds of adventures that way, for sure. and mm-hmm. so, um, so for me, I I enjoy those things, and I'll say this too. Um, it's not just about the original text. I know that's probably heretical to say. It's not just about that, though. That's the main objective in what we're talking about here. I learn a lot about how ancient Jews and ancient Christians read the Bible anytime I come up against differences in a manuscript or differences in, in manuscripts. Um so that's kind of cool too. It it sheds a light on the history of the reading. And I'm reminded afresh again, guys, that I'm not the first person to discover this problem. That's something too that the sensationalism brings as they make it sound like, well, no one knew about these problems. Mm-hmm. That's that's hogwash. I I his, history shows more time and time again. That there were scholars of uh, Jewish and Christian scholars that were aware of a lot of these problems um, before the modern era. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, so I'm I'm always reminded again, like I'm not the first one to do this, and I and I'm actually kind of in a long line of scholars, uh, Christian and Jewish, uh, working through some of these issues. So I I don't know I I that that's kind of exhilarating actually, For sure. and then. Yeah. And then as a teacher, you know, I get I get to walk students through that, too, you know, and and so to me, that's 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 a blast to not to have to do that alone necessarily. You sure. see yourself. Like, yeah. So good yeah, perspective. Good. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, yeah. thanks for your time. It's been awesome hearing all of your your thoughts and your wisdom and your perspectives. And thanks for mm-hmm. educating us more on the Old Testament. Yeah, maybe people will now read 77% of their Bibles. You know, <laughs> this will encourage them. <laughs> we can pray to that end, friends. <laughs> so, awesome. well, thanks so much. It's been a blast. I've enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Bible Toolbox. All of the resources mentioned in this episode are posted on our website, thebibletoolbox.com. There you can also find out more information on how to give and support us. And we have loved all of the encouragement and feedback we've received from you. So thanks so much.